to the Arts Report for Wednesday, March 13th, 5.02 p.m. Hello and welcome to the Arts Report, CITR 101.9, Post Fun Drive. Who? want to thank everyone out there, including our most latest donor that's still coming in, Deb Pickman of Theater UBC. She'll be on the show next week talking about Blood Relations, their upcoming show. Um, we did it, guys. Just over 32000 um, which will be absorbed immediately by much-needed equipment budget upgrade. Um, but... I have to thank the listeners, my friends and family, and the local arts community for donating. Uh, the Arts Report and UBC Arts on Air together raised over $500. And um, that is thanks to your commitment to community media. I'm not going to take any credit for that. That's on you at home. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, and you will be getting thank yous from me in person soon. So look out for those. Uh, today on the show we have a... Uh, three subjects. We have the Vancouver International Dance Festival, we have the Magic Flute, and we'll have a review from Nick Sartar of Terminus. Uh, And so I think what we'll do is we'll start out with the Vancouver International Dance Festival up top. Uh, Now this is running from, uh, is already on and it will be running until the 23rd of March uh, at the Roundhouse Community Centre. And I had the pleasure of, so far, of seeing two shows, one of which was was exposed by Company Araska, which is over now, and the other, which has another show tonight, Battery Opera, performing Young Ah and Soufé and everything, and that's happening last night and tonight at the Roundhouse Center. Um, So we are going to hear a little bit about those shows. And first and foremost, uh, I thought I'd give you a little bit of a taste. Yes, a taste via radio. Uh, this is gives you a sense of some of the music and spoken word of Korazga Dance, which is uh, world pr- did its world premiere at the Dance Center's Global Dance Series last year. Uh, and uh, the choreography and performance are by Alvin Orazga Tolentino and Martin Inthamusu, uh, who is from Uruguay one of their top contemporary performers. And uh, Expose was uh, an interesting experience, uh, to be sure. It looks at the movement and interaction and struggle uh, of the masculine form and of homosexuality, looking at gender, identity, and sexuality. Um, And the two soloists worked both together and... uh, not in opposition at some points, but it worked together and separately in the same space through a series of pieces that represented various ways of approaching sexuality, gender, and identity. Now, 
Uh, Kolaraska has been around for about 10 years now, and they uh, are founded by Alvin Araska in 2000. And they look for uh, dance as well as uh, multimedia. Now, we did get to see multimedia in Kolaraska, and I will talk a little bit more about what I thought about the piece when uh, we return, including what I thought about their use of multimedia. But I thought what we'd do is listen to a little bit of the piece and hear what Alvan and uh, Alvan and Martin had to say about Expose. I'm Alvin Erasga Tolentino. I'm a dancer and a choreographer here in Vancouver. I'm the artistic director of company Erasga Dance Society, which is based here in Vancouver. And uh, we are, of course, very pleased to present Expose again for the 2013 Vancouver International Dance Festival. It's a dance piece that is uh, transcontinental, a project that was built between Canada and Uruguay in partnership with uh, Martin Intamusu, Complot from uh, Montevideo. And originally it was created for the 2011 dance Global Dance Series of the Dance Center. And we presented it also in Teatro Solis in Montevideo and in um, a festival called Into the Fields, which is uh, held in uh, Bonn, Germany, uh, as part of Cocoon's uh, festival in 2011. I come from, from Uruguay. I also lived in, in Germany for a while, so I have these two backgrounds, and that's mostly what we were interested in when we decided to work together with Alvin to see what about this topic of gender and identity. Well, uh, what are the issues that are, we have in common and what are the differences that we could find in our own stories? So actually, the, the piece comes from there, from our own background, and and to see, yeah, to travel together into that 
huge topic that is uh, identity. And so it's not only about Martin and Alvin, it started from theirs, but we want it to be more universal so that it's, this is the research we've done. I think that the piece has a universal um, ideas. I mean, it, it deals with identity and gender. It deals with homosexuality. And it's looking at the, the, the history and the current situation of what it's like to be gay and to be out or not out. So it cross borders and it simulates ideas to to younger audiences who might be uh, in the process of understanding their identity, whether they may be gay or not. And it also reflects on, uh, um, in terms of historical, um, personal issue that, that older people or other people that might have. You know, it, it has, it has a, an identity crisis and essence that not just for gay people, but I think generally for heterosexual or transsexual, you know, uh, it deals with that. It's, 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 a no, it's the notion of identity. And, and we pose that question to everybody. We pose that notion of sexuality or how, how to be as, as beings. You referenced a lot of classic portraitures of femininity and the movements of femininity um, as men and as male dancers, was there a vocabulary that you were taught to express masculinity? And how are you playing with that during these pieces? Well, about this, these women, we decided to work on them because they represent a gay icon. Mm-hmm. And, and they've been, you know, they've been a, a model for women, but also gay would look up at them like, wow. And then I think the... the Femininity. This is this is something interesting because it's also the cliche of the high heels that you find there, or the wig, and all these things that you could consider them from the feminine side. How you bring them to the piece, and how you make a little bit uncomfortable the audience, right? Because they they it's a male body in high heels with these feminine movements, but still a male body. So this ambiguity, it's the interesting thing about identity. We are not all the same. Everyone is different. And, and that for that, to find out who you are, you need to research all these things. Even the cliches from these feminine bodies that we embody for a while and maybe it doesn't work, so you change to another posture. And then it's this research we all do to find out who you are. And instead of being who other people want you to be. Some people live in that cage, right? And just follow the rules somehow. Well, we, we are questioning that in this piece. We are opening that door for people to reflect on this topic, but to reflect about themselves as well. Mm-hmm. I think also as contemporary dancers and artists, uh, it's, you know, the beauty of this work is that it's art, right? Uh, art for us and, 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 our, and our art is movements. And um, in contemporary dance, it's, it's, it's an open thing, you know? It's not classical ballet where you really see the female figure versus the, the male figure, right? In contemporary, we have that possibility to really explore the notion of non-gender. Is there gender in movements? You know, that's the big question, you know, and it's it's trying to understand the polarities of movements. What is masculine? What is feminine? How do we embody it? How do we embody it in, in, in that structure? And, and in contemporary practice, we have the possibility to go extreme or not. 
and, and that's we play the role we don't play the role so we go and look at the polarities of those notion whether it's gender or non-gender and I think that the beauty of movement is that it's universal Who who's you know who's to say that that's masculine that's feminine when I think that you know the human capacity has all of those it's just that as artists we are able to reveal those and and make sense of it whether and question it also and expose them <laughs> and expose them yeah I felt like you saying like am I a man now I put on this tie am I a man now what about these heels or am um, I doing what you expected me to do mm-hmm. and that's that's also the the role playing right who is in power in that position so to, to reach that ending when we say well we are in power everyone is in power of their own life mm-hmm. um is there anything special about Vancouver that inspires you or are you more global in your mindset? Well, I think that there's a breadth of diversity that's happening in Vancouver now, especially in the last 10 years. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. And and I think that what makes us very special and unique is that we're right here in the West Coast and we're surrounded by this, you know, big, huge mountain. So we're kind of really um, uh, concentrated and that concentration brings us this possibility to really uh, explore a lot of identities, a lot of diversity in practice. So I think that's what's happening right now. And also the fact that because uh, as a city, we're, we're growing and there are now a lot of international interactions. So there's a lot of this uh, conversing of practice, uh, media, multimedia practice of interdisciplinary. So a lot of that, I think, is becoming more relevant now as we enter this this new phase in the dance community. Um, and it's very exciting because I think that there's a lot of new artists that are really integrating uh, multiple practice. No, I was just thinking now when you ask him uh, if he felt more like a local or a global, what something I really like from Vancouver, it, whenever I come, I feel it's a global city. So actually, uh, I'm, I think it's one of the cities where I felt most welcome in the world like everyone makes you feel comfortable and and you can and you can see whatever you want from wherever from wherever in the world it's here it's like a, a little world in one city there's people from all around the world and that is unique about the city that is unique i mean i've been traveling a lot and i can tell you this is something i love from the city you never feel a foreigner you really feel like part of a big community that is embracing you. And that's very motivating to come here. Thank you very much to Alvin and Martin for speaking to me a little bit about their piece. One of the things... So, to describe the pieces uh, and the the program of Expose, uh, there were several interactions between the two men, and there were also several sections where they were both dancing seemingly independently. They were going through their own struggles and journeys. Um, It's a brightly lit white space with a bedroom-like gauze-covered area, kind of a, a reclusive area, that they would enter and exit. Um, there was a sequence where Alvin was uh, trying on his 
his latest favorite wig and Martin ripped it off him and it was uh, it was a struggle as to I believe w- what was being out and how are we comfortable with being out uh, there was a sequence where they it, it followed a sequence where they were talking about um, their love of these as he mentioned these gay icons one of my uh, favorite parts uh, was the very end where they simply put on these suit pieces until they were dressed in a suit and then they brought out the heels and walked in the heels. Um, heels also opened the piece when they uh, both had on heels and were having their own individual interactions. And if you go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash arts report, uh, I did post a video which is from staging, I believe, last year in 2011. My issue, I think my main issue with the piece, especially when you watch the video, is that, as usual, the pacing. Um, I found that the video actually makes it seem a lot more quick and uh, sharp than the actual experience of watching it, especially one sequence where Martin tells a very, very funny story where he has come out to his mother and his best friend, and both have very kind of nonchalant, humorous reactions, mostly centered on uh, their fight for Keanu Reeves. They do not want to fight him for Keanu Reeves. And right after this story, which was quite funny, uh, the whole audience laughed, they show this, like, sketch on a television screen and I guess the point was I don't know to, to, for them to allow them to do their costume change but uh, I found it very disconcerting it was not particularly well made produced or funny and it literally exactly reproduced what happened in his story um, and so all the punchlines were were very weak um, so get rid of that and then you have a, a really interesting performance that being said the other thing that I um, wasn't fully on board with, and this is actually not necessarily their performance particularly, but there has been lately um, the Talking Stick Festival's presentation, which I did enjoy, as well as um, Plastic Orchid Factory, um, L- uh, Levy Dance at the AMP program at Chutzpah, and they're all focusing on this contact improvisation to varying degrees of success. Plastic Orchid Factory was amazing. Um, Talking Stick Festival slightly less so, but still interesting. Um, and Talking Stick Festival had um, less of that within it. Um, the other thing that they had in common was this kind of erratic um, or seemingly erotic um, movement that was very jerky and they used uh, soundscaping rather than music. And these are things that are, seem to be trends, which um, are, are interesting and, and, and often a pleasure to watch. But unfortunately, it gets a little repetitive. Um, not every person is out there seeing, you know, five or six of these pieces a month. So it may not be an experience that you can relate to. But if you are, um, our next our next piece is actually uh, was quite a relief from this. So uh, Expose uh, is the co-Erazka or company Erazka. And uh, you can find them on companyerazka.com. And you can check out more information about their piece as well at vidf.ca slash co-Erazka. So check them out. Uh, they are a local company. 
then the other uh, piece that I really uh, enjoyed and that we're going to talk about right now is called uh, by Battery Opera, and it's Young Ha, Young Ha, and uh, Souffle slash Everything. It's two pieces. The first about forty minutes long. The second about thirty, uh, about fifteen minutes long. And in the first piece, Jung Ah and Su Fei, Jung Ah and Su Fei of Battery Opera, they uh, have a eclectic collection of 1960s psychedelic costumes, and they remove much of these pieces very slowly over the first ten minutes, um, while um, they interact with each other in this. <laughs> the only way I can describe it is like ferret-like, but that that's not fair because your particularly negative connotations could arise from that. Um, but it's this very questioning, quirky, quick, um, animalistic movement. And they go on to interact with each other in this way until uh, Jung Sufei and then Jung Ah say, you know, I will dance for you. And as they do, they change costume, they remove costume, and they each dance in their own way for each other as the other watches. And this produces quite an intimate setting because it's very much acknowledging the intimacy of dance and also the somewhat absurd situation of watching a person dance on their own, as many of these dance experiences are. And they reveal a interesting, unique technique, um, uh, an interesting respect for movement, and uh, they really do use a technique that you can identify, and yet at the same time is very unique to these people. Um, Jung Ah, she had this uh, almost martial arts-inspired movement, while Su Fei had a much more uh, idiosyncratic and yet no uh, no less graceful movement. Uh, and then in the second piece, uh, Everything, Soufé's solo, um, is a play on ritual. And we're going to talk a little bit about that coming up with her. This is uh, Soufé from Battery Opera speaking about uh, first her piece, Everything, and then opening it up to her relationship with Jung Ah. And uh, the music is sequence of Later Heaven, which I found I have in the... Uh, CITR Library, uh, Sequence of Earlier Heaven by Barry Truax was the music for everything. There was no music for Zhang Ah and Su Fei, the two solos that interacted. Can you fill us in a little bit on your background as a dancer? I come from Malaysia, so my early training was in children's theater, and but my dance training was kind of a mishmash of traditional Malay dance, uh, some contemporary, and and then also I was very affected by rituals and folk dances and and, and traditional uh, Southeast Asian forms. So my own training has. I always had influences that I don't I don't share that with a lot of dancers, you know, in North America, say. 
And so when I started choreographing, you know, there were always um, elements in the body or sort of energies that uh, I was trying to get at that was very hard to uh, transmit to people. It's hard to get people to understand the, the difference between a, a body that's in ritual and a body that's on stage. Um, if people haven't actually witnessed or experienced those rituals, right? In your second piece, Everything, mm-hmm. you really incorporate both what might be seen as traditional ritual and also your own ritual. Um, yes. Sometimes when you hear ritual, you think of something that's kind of rote, but I found this was very stimulating to the imagination. Um, uh-huh. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, t- you took it from personal ritual to something that people could be involved in imaginatively? Uh, we're going to sort of dangerous ground often when we talk about ritual mm-hmm, on stage mm-hmm. because often I find it just becomes, it's fake ritual because it's just a representation of ritual. You know, a ritual has a function. It's not just to look nice, right? So that space is a very different space than a, a, a proscenium, a black box where people come and there's an aesthetic kind of uh, expectation, and the, and the roles of the audience are different. And so I very much wanted to make sure that I, I stayed true to the sense of ritual, just to to make something happen. Um, to, it's, it's an action, not, not a, a, a representation. Um, so for me, the piece um, uses ritual objects and I'm aware of the sense of time, um, the sort of expectations that are there in theater, and certainly that the music um, helps inscribe that time. But um, for myself, uh, the the dance comes out of me um, throwing the objects or dropping the objects, and and they drop where they will, you know, I can't really control where they are, uh, and and the, the speed with which they drop, you know, I say I throw paper in the air, and sometimes the paper goes very fast, and sometimes it gets stuck to my fingers, or they get stuck together, and then they catch air in a different way, so each time they fall, or each time a stick falls, you know, I, I can't control exactly where they fall. And that becomes the environment and and time space because the way they fall creates a certain rhythm that that I have to kind of respond to. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have a a sense of being in the ritual, maybe because the time is not imposed. It's happening right there, the rhythms, I mean, the, the musicality of the piece. Privately, you know, I throw about a thousand pieces of paper in the in the piece and on each piece of paper I've written to my ancestors and to the ancestors of the Musqueam, the Squamish and the Salvatus on whose territory I dance. So it's sort of my own private acknowledgement um, of the fact that I'm, I have the privilege of dancing on unceded Coast Salish territory. Um, and it's my way of, um, I guess, negotiating my um, the history I carry as an immigrant uh, and the sense of arriving here and, uh, and negotiating with the history here, you know. 
Um, so that's my own private ritual. But, you know, to write those words on every single piece of paper takes time. So by the time I perform, I've spent maybe two or three hours every day in the last couple of weeks writing these messages to spirits. <laughs> so uh, the, the, my body has been, I guess, um, inscribed by, by that act. You spoke a little bit about the crisis and the crises that mm-hmm. you continue to have with dance and um, talking a little bit about adjusting, going from adjusting to dancing. And I, and I found that really, really interesting. I'd love if you talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm 48 years old and I've been dancing for the last uh, tw- you know, 30 years. You know, when you start, when you're young, you, you dance because you love it. it it's, it's fantastic. It, it's, you know, my experience of, oh, it's the first time I'm actually good at something. And, and the rewards, you know, uh, your body's moving, you know, all those things. But as you keep doing it, you know, your relationship changes. You become involved in a deeper way and you start to um, analyze it. You critique it as you need to. And in that critique of it, you question that. You question, well, what is it good for? It's kind of been a hypothesis or or a notion that I've been working with is that dance can just be adjusting around our sensations. And part of it is is realizing that, you know, the, the, the paradigm of dance, that youthful body, and as a kind of feeding off of the artist as, as um, you feed up this artist, artists mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sacrifice their body so you don't have to, right? It, it, it's this weird Jesus Christ thing, and uh, <laughs> it's not—it's not a very—it's um, a very linear uh, um, idea of the artist. It's a very consumer idea of the artist, um, and and I don't think that is that should be the only um, notion of the artist around. So uh, to me, trying to find a way of dancing that um, is healthy uh, and, and is about wellness is important. And it takes, takes me back to a kind of dancing that's very, that's very old and ancient, where you dance till you're old. It's not just something that young people do. So it's a very folk um ritual way of dancing. So there was a real intimacy and a real sense of humor in the piece. And uh-huh. so I, I'd love to hear a little bit about why you enjoy working with each other. So I thought maybe that would be a good place to end. You know, Jula and I are actually, I think, quite different people. I mean, you know, we're both immigrants and we're both Asian women, but our histories are completely different. And our relationship to that is also very different. I mean, she came from quite a classical, um, you know, ballet training um was I, I had none of that, um, and yet when we dance together, there is a connection that's just purely dance. Like it's our conversations are complex from through the dancing. Your solos were very different, but yes. very complementary, and you could see, uh, as you mentioned, the conversation. I think. I really enjoyed watching it because your relationship was so strong and it was so there, so present. You were both so present. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, I, like, I like leaving a little something to the imagination. I'm sure every person narrated that interaction differently. Yeah, cause, uh, um, because we, we weren't trying to represent anything. We're just dancing. And, and I guess what I'm saying is that if you dance with somebody, 
then anything is possible between two people. <laughs> yeah, and and that's what I was saying last night was that there's a moment where you you stop adjusting just to be comfortable and to be well, and then you start dancing with someone, and and that that dance is is vital. Thank you very much to Sue Faye for talking to me a little bit. How the second piece, Everything, was a... She threw what she loaded, told us later in the uh, in the talkback. Um, she and Barry Truax had been connected um, through a... Uh, I think it's a Canadian dance company... Um, contemporary dance company uh, as a project and he had submitted this Songs of Earlier Heaven which actually follows Songs of Later Heaven which is playing right now and it is Asian percussion instruments following the I Ching and she as a Taoist was thinking that Barry was quite the Taoist tourist and then she realized that because she had learned her, she was a uh, brought up Catholic. Her Taoist upbringing was also very tourist because she doesn't speak or read. Uh, she doesn't read or write Chinese, so she went to a tourist shop and she bought incense and these prayer papers, uh, and she wrote on them, as you heard from uh, acknowledgement of the territory. And this is reflect uh, was influenced further by a panel she was on where where she had to give thanks, uh, and she was so afraid to mess it up that she decided that she would embed that in the in the practice of this ritual and also practice the spelling and pronunciation of those of those calls to acknowledgement um the spatial nature of battery uh, of this show is is present in all battery opera pieces uh she says that uh, battery is because it's small and practical and has the polarity, the yin and yang, and opera because of its big impractical qualities, uh, and again, the polarity that ensues. Um, it was very exciting to watch a whole piece so musical without any music as well. It really gave you the sense to hear the breath and the movement, and uh, had these oppositional sequences. And uh, the again, the Jung Ah and Su Fei's working together was was wonderful to see. So you can check out Battery Opera's presentation uh, tonight at the Roundhouse, March thirteenth, eight p.m. And you can check out a video online as well. You can check out Battery Opera at uh, batteryopera.com. And I asked Sufei what she was interested in seeing, and. Uh, our our interests lined up. We have uh, Dancers of Damalamid, uh, Spirit Transforming, which is happening from March 14th to 16th, 7 p.m. at the Roundhouse, and the Arts Report will be seeing that. Uh, she also was interested in seeing Jocelyn Montpetit dance, and that is something that we'll, uh, we gave away on the Arts Report, so we'll get a report from that. Uh, and then that's March 19th and 20th at 8 p.m. at the Roundhouse. And then the other one that the Arts Report will be seeing is T42, uh, T42's Another Chopstick Story, March 19th to 21st. And I was really interested in seeing things that were both multidisciplinary, multicultural, and also still very contemporary. So those are the picks 
for the arts report, check out all the shows at vidf.ca. It is running until the 23rd. We are going to take a break. And when we return, we'll have a review of Terminus, Pi Theater's Terminus by Nick Sartoy of Shirt Arts Society. Stay tuned. UBC Contemporary Players are performing a free concert Friday afternoon at the Belkin Art Gallery. The program features works specifically chosen to complement the Esther Schellevgerts exhibition, currently running at the Belkin. The concert is this Friday, March 8th at 2 p.m. at the Belkin Art Gallery, Main Mall, UBC. For details, go to belkin.ubc.ca slash events. All are welcome. Admission is free. Beating Hearts, a fundraiser supporting grassroots development work in rural Ghana, is on this Sunday, March 17th at the Yanza Club. Featuring traditional Ghanaian drum and dance ensemble, Adanu Hobobo, as well as sets from world music outfits, the Rio Samea Band, Tarab, Mezgla and Zimba Moe. All proceeds go towards the Jogaji Education Development Foundation and the Ghana School Project, two organisations doing community-based work in the African nation. Tickets available online at beatinghearts.brownpapertickets.com or for $20 at the door. Beating Hearts at the Yonza Club, 3 West 8th Avenue, Vancouver. Sponsored by CITR. Welcome back to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9. Terminus by Mark Oro is playing right now put on by Pi Theatre. It's Mark O'Rao's Nightmarish Vision of One Night in Dublin. There's a serial killer with a penchant for Bette Midler, uh, a teacher who's trying to save their student, and a young woman who finds love uh, in demonic places. Originally commissioned in Dublin in 2007, uh, it's had an international run, and it is on right now until the 17th. You can check out information at pittheater.com slash terminus. Uh, and if that all doesn't intrigue you, uh, because I have talked to Richard before about who is the director of Pi Theater, and uh, it sounds like a great show, but let's let's get some professional opinion on this. Nick, are you there? Hello. Nick, uh, you, former co-host of the Arts Report and theater man about town. <laughs> Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Terminus uh, playing right now at Performance Works. That's such a big question, Megan. This show is is like a, a whirlwind of theatrical amazement. Um, so, <laughs> That's so quite the, the grand the description statement. you just you just gave is like only it only scratches the surface of the sort of fantasticness of this show. Okay, so uh, give us a give us a little more dirt. Give us a couple of the things that stood out for you and why it's so fantasticness. Totally, um, the the script first of all by uh, Marco Rowe, the, the Irish playwright you're describing. He um, has written this phenomenally rhythmic, dark, really intense, and somehow really light and airy and funny at the same time. Um, it it has it's one of those plays where when you're sitting down and hearing the actors perform it. Um, you sort of lose track of time. Um, you, you just kind of, you're sitting there and you get so mesmerized with the words. Um, it's, yeah, the, the way it's written is really, really phenomenal. It's really, really fantastic. Um, I should mention, too, that the interesting thing about this play um, is that it's, it's three monologues. So the three characters that you just described, basically they tell their story, um, and some of their stories kind of overlap. 
basically they tell their stories in a monologue style, so they're delivering them directly to the audience. Uh, and that style's pretty tricky to do. So you need some pretty fantastic um, actors to be able to pull that off. And, and Richard Wolf has found three phenomenal actors um, who, who pull it off so I just, I just can't think of any other words. Like fantastic, it was just—it was fantastic. He was—he was, was, was telling me a little bit about how it's very much like people telling these scary stories, but they actually happen rather than the type of of stories you normally hear, you know, in the pub on a rainy day or night. Oh yeah, stormy, yeah, dark like, and stormy night. You're, yeah, like you're living these stories with these characters. So while these characters are, are sharing these really, they're brutal, like these brutal, brutal stories, um, you're, you're right there with them. This is not like, yeah, here, by the way, this, this, like, this thing happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they've created this really vivid world for you. Um, and the, the set design, the, the, the production design overall, so the lighting and the sound, everything is working together so sort of cohesively to really drive that sort of dark, fantastic point home. It's really unlike um, a lot of what people, I think, think mm-hmm. a, a night of theater is going to feel like. It's, it's, not, um, it's not your usual night of theater, and I think for that reason alone, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, if you, you know, had to pick one of the monologues, or if, if one of them surprised you or stood out for you, would you could you mm-hmm. do that? You know, the, I probably could, but not with giving... You know, I don't want to give anything away. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it's, it's one of those where, it's, you know, like, there's just enough information um, uh, based on the description of these characters that you don't really, uh, uh, yeah, I, I want to I leave it as a surprise. If you're thinking about going to see the play, go see the play. Um, you will be shocked. You will be surprised. You will be disgusted. You will be um, laughing. It, it, it's, it covers all of the emotional gamut that you expect to go see um, in a night of theater. It's very risky. Um, it's definitely not for the uh, for the sort of faint um, of heart folks that are. Sorry, go ahead. It's not for the faint of heart. No, not for the faint of heart, and not for those that are expecting to just go to the you know theater and sort of just have this nice night of entertainment wash over them. It's very entertaining, um, but in a very um, intense and um, yeah, just really an interesting way. So, so well, go check it out. That's pie th- theater for you. Now, um, yeah. what does a shift have coming up? Oh, good question. Um, we have a show uh, called Seascape with Sharks and Dancer. Um, it's going to be coming up on uh, April 11th through the 20th at CBC Studio 700 downtown. It's a really great show by an American playwright called Don Nigro. Um, two characters, and they have a really weird but strange love story. Um, this this season shift is sort of exploring this idea of um, broken relationships. It's kind of an interesting theme to play with. Um, we started with closer back in the fall and now we're doing this which sort of takes that idea and propels it in a different light so it's going to be really fun and um tickets are on sale shift theater.ca and uh yeah it's gonna be great okay well thanks so much nick and uh and uh we'll try to get myself down to there down to terminus um have a great afternoon you too so that is uh terminus from it started on february 28th and it's going through march 17th uh, St. Patrick's Day, pretty good for an Irish play at Performance Works on Granville Island, and you can check out more information, com slash Terminus. And thank you to Nick for joining us today. Uh, we are going to take another quick break, and when we return, we're going to wind up the show uh, with a package from Sarah Lapsley, one of our most exciting uh, and excited contributors, and she went to 
the magic flute. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we return on the Arts Report. I'm Ryan Beal. And I'm Kevin Lee. The ShouldHarvardDid.com comedians are coming to your campus. It's like the website, but in real life. Come see the Sunday Service, who was recently named Canada's Best Improv Group. Guess what? The show is hosted by Graham Clark of Stop Podcasting Yourself, awarded Canada's Best Podcast. The comedy show will be followed by presentations by Brigitte Depape, the Senate Rogue Page, and founder of ShouldHarvardDid.com, Sean Devlin. It'll be coming to UBC on March 18th at 6.30 p.m. Entry by donation at the North Theatre. The event is sponsored by CITR 101.9 FM. And Sean Devlin, founder of shitharborddid.com, will personally be doing a push-up for a dollar. If you pay him a hundred dollars, he'll do a hundred push-ups at every event. So come. Learn. In my pants. Laugh. In my pants. Oh... Oh, those guys. Uh, yeah, Shit Harper did. University of British Columbia, Monday, March 18th, Norm Theater, 6.30. Bunch of CITR people will be there because we're sponsoring that because we care. That's the type of local alternative programming and politics that you've come to expect. Oh, I'm sorry. This is not the Fun Drive show. You do not have to talk us up. You're already on board. The Magic Flute. Now, this is uh, something by a little musician I like to call Mozart. Uh, it was actually a favorite of mine as a kid, and both the opera, kind of, but also the kids' version that I had in English. It was a whole thing. Uh, I have it at home on CD. Um, but it is, um, for opera, both a fantastic show, but one that's been around uh, and produced for a very long time. However, the Vancouver Opera uh, version uh, that opens March 9th is that opened March 9th uh, is actually a little different and it's a little closer to home. Uh, the timeless Coast Salish realm on a quest for love and enlightenment. Uh, Tamino finds himself at the center of a battle between the forces of light and darkness. And all the characters are uh, reimagined uh, in West Coast indigenous style. Uh, it's directed by Robert McKenzie. Robert McKenzie is also um, involved in the upcoming When the Sun Comes Out, uh, sponsored by the Powell Street Festival Society which for the uh, Queer Arts Festival 2013. And uh, this will be a very cool show. Um, Sarah Lapsley saw The Magic Flute, uh, recently, and she's put together a package of her review and some beautiful excerpts from the show. And when we get back, we'll talk a little bit more about what's coming up around town. So thank you very much, Sarah, for your work on The Magic Flute. Enjoy.
Hello, I'm Sarah Lapsley. It was such an honor and a privilege to attend Vancouver Opera's opening night of The Magic Flute. And you just heard a little bit of Mozart's overture to The Magic Flute. And it was his penultimate work, and it debuted in 1791. And it's a wonderful opera known for its complexity because it can be interpreted on a number of levels, like the esoteric... Um, the political and the personal. So, um, yeah, it was really exciting, held at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. They staged the opera using themes from First Nations culture. I wasn't sure how that would work, but it actually worked beautifully, and I was thinking how sad it is that this is unlikely to be seen outside of BC because it's so unique, this blending of the sort of European culture and the First Nations culture and the West Coast setting and the beautiful Aboriginal costumes. So Chief Ian Campbell was there to open it in full regalia, and he welcomed us to the Squamish and Musqueam territories and uh, said an opening prayer with drumming and chanting. And one interesting thing he said was that where we were, which is like around the stadium Skytrain station and the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, was at one time um, a spring, uh, a spring water fountain and um, he said it was considered by the people to be a portal to the spirit world so it kind of set the tone and then the beautiful overture started and it's very transporting and light and uplifting but driving throughout and just perfection um, it was only marred by this strange video montage of ugly Vancouver condos and then they sort of slowly roll it back to um, you know the water and the mountains and rocks and cedar trees so I guess they were trying to juxtapose you know the ugliness of modern culture with um, the natural world so the story starts to unfold and I have to say like my jaw dropped when they started singing in English I was really expecting the original German um, but they did still need to have English subtitles and in the end I think I was I was glad um, to have it in English so Tamino is the pronet protagonist and he's sort of wandering along um, in this forest um, and in the program synopsis they say he's felled by a two-faced serpent so I was confused because there didn't seem to be a, a serpent there was a small child with a mask which might have been a serpent but there was no evidence of any kind of altercation so then he just ends up on the ground it's just lying there um, but he's so it's a bit of a muddy start. But he's found by three maidens of the Queen of the Night, and uh, the story starts to unfold. So the costumes are truly magnificent. They're colorful, these bold designs, otherworldly, the Coast Salish motifs. Um, they also had figures, sort of spirit figures, in body stockings that had Aboriginal designs as well. Oh, so, so it's worth seeing just for the costumes. And the Queen of the Night, of course, is one of the most famous figures in opera, and people fall over themselves to make her spectacular in productions. Um, and, and this Queen of the Night was maybe one of the most unique ever. She had a bald head and this electric blue huge cape with butterflies on it and this silver kind of galactic First Nations dress. So it's one of the cooler renditions of the Queen of the Night you might ever see. So um, yeah, it just felt wonderful to see something that so many people have seen and enjoyed over the last 200 years. Papageno, he's one of the more beloved figures, um, and he's like a birdman or a fool who goes on a parallel hero's journey with Tamino as his companion. And he's really the most developed character in the opera, the other characters are more 
kind of archetypal or flat. So the Queen of the Night sends Tamino and Papageno on a quest to rescue her daughter from uh, her enemy, the Sun King Sarastro. So at first you think she's good and he's bad. Um, but then it cuts to Sarastro's territory where the Queen of the Night's daughter is enslaved. And Tamino arrives and catches a glimpse of her and they fall madly in love. And there's a lot of choral singing led by Sarastro. Um, and he's just this magnificent sun king in a gold outfit, sort of half Egyptian, half Aboriginal. He's got this big, delicious bass voice and he's surrounded by priests. And you realize he's kind of a good guy at that point. In Act 2, Tamino and Pamina are commanded to undergo these trials in order to be together. And it, at the end, they pass the trials after both coming to, you know, near suicide and torment. And then Sarastro and the Queen of the Night, they seem like mortal enemies, but in the end, they come together and bless the couple. And you realize it was sort of all a cosmic joke, um, you know, so that the protagonist would go through the darkness for their own good. And it turns out they did take some liberties with the libretto to feminize it because the original, um, the patriarchal sun king wins out and triumphs over the queen of the night. Um, and she represents the feminine, the body, and the irrational. And, you know, people didn't like that back then. Um, in this case, they're sort of more secretly in cahoots and they work together. Um, but I wonder if in this softened version something was lost. They sung about their terrible trials you were like what trials like I didn't think that part was dramatic enough you didn't get the sense of their struggle or their suffering they sang about it but there was nothing in the body gestures or the sets to indicate you know this great struggle another interesting thing they did was incorporate aboriginal dialect throughout and in the sense that these are endangered lost languages I thought that was really amazing and they sound truly unfamiliar and unique but they're sort of sprinkled throughout the libretto and it sort of broke up the flow um, and I think it might have been better to have like a monologue or a powerful invocation using the language where you could really focus your attention on it and and still have the English subtitles um, Simone Osborne as Pamina was wonderful she had this powerful and deep voice she's really talented and of course it was a thrill to hear Taya Kashera as Queen of the Night and the second aria which is that famous extremely difficult coloratura aria it was great to hear and understand um, how it fit into the story so she did a great job singing it was beautiful she did a great technical job um, it wasn't perfect there was like a couple tiny pitchy things but I mean, she's an early career singer. This is the most difficult opera aria ever. And, you know, we can't expect a total world-class performance. But, you know, she really did a great job. I think what she lacked was a powerful presence. She had a lighter, more ephemeral quality. I was really craving this, like, deep, dark, commanding, powerful, terrifying queen of the night. Um, the highlight for me was meeting Papageno and Papagena, his female counterpart. They come together at the end and they sing this happy and jubilant um, aria about their life to come together. And it's a real crowd pleaser. So I thought I'd play that song for you now. Ha 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 
That was Papagena and Papageno's aria from the Magic Flute, and that was in German. I think the Vancouver Opera one was actually better than that. Um, but the music in the opera was exquisite, and you know we have Mozart at the height of his genius, um, and it's surely one of the most marvelous operas ever written. And it's this mixture of light and merry music, but also dramatic and spiritual without being overwrought like Wagner. And to hear it live with an orchestra was a total thrill. And, you know, I'd love to see it again in different productions to just compare. And one of the messages that I really took away was the magic and the healing power of music. So Tamino has his magic flute and Papageno has little bells in a box. And when they're in trouble, they play the flute and open the box and the bells play and it charms and enchants the people around. Um, you know, and also the initiation of the hero's journey and the blending of the light and the dark as a source of power. So thank you so much to the Vancouver Opera for sending me and to the Arts Report. I hope we can do much more um, in the future with them. And the Magic Flute runs until March 17th, so do check it out. It's well worth it and a really fun night out. So I'm Sarah Lapsey for the Arts Report. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Sarah loves loves her classical music. Um, so uh, that is again uh, VancouverOpera.ca Magic Flute, uh, and it is running until the seventeenth. I think 
I think there's something to be said no matter the success. I actually read an, a review online that didn't like it, so who's to tell? But uh, I trust Sarah. She's, she's a good judge of, of the classical stuff, more so than I. And uh, the idea of updating things so that they aren't so unfeminist or so that they incorporate the locale or they incorporate other legends, I think is something that we need to start examining. You don't necessarily ruin a story by cutting down on the patriarchal messages a little bit. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and as I said earlier, so the director of this uh, in very interesting take on opera is also the director of a very interesting take on opera, uh, the first Canadian lesbian opera, When the Sun Comes Out, which will be part of the Queer Arts Festival, whose theme is transgression now. So you're transgressing on a classical format with new subject matter. And uh, that is also been written by Rachel Rose. She's the librettist. And Rachel Rose wrote Song and Spectacle, which I actually am going to be reviewing in upcoming in upcoming show, uh, either next week or the week after. And that's a book of poetry that has been uh, nominated for an Auden Prize. So it all comes together, especially since I'm now uh, working at the Queer Arts Festival. So this summer we'll have... Uh, our arts reporters cover the festival so that you get the real tea and not necessarily uh, have to worry about the inside scoop from yours truly. So we'll make sure that's all on the up and up. But it's I, I always love when all the arts community kind of comes together and you get all these pieces from all over. And that is our show for today. Um, thank you so much to Sarah Lapsley, uh, to Sue Fay and Nick Sorte, uh, sorry, Nick Sartor uh, of Shift Arts, as well as uh, Martin and Alvin of Expose. And we will uh, have a review of the Shit Harper Did show. We will have interviews and reviews from the Vancouver International Dance Festival and more next week on the Arts Report. Thank you.